Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. It's a special day. This is my father's yurt site, Leib Ben Svia Levi, and all these words should be an aliyah for his neshama. The mitzvahs that we do give our fathers and mothers and ancestors extra wings to ascend to the higher realms. Remember, we're finite, but, but God is infinite. So even the soul, so to speak, is, is finite in a way, but, but God is infinite, which means there's no limit to the number of aliyahs, so the number of heavenly elevations that a soul can achieve or that we ourselves can achieve in this world because there is no ceiling. There is no ceiling. And if you feel as though you have reached a ceiling, then that means that you're not learning the right Torah or that you don't have the right teacher because Torah is absolutely endless. And if you're not experiencing the mind expansiveness of it, then that just means that you're not drinking from the right waters. There's no problem with Torah, believe me. It's possible to get stuck, but don't allow yourself to get stuck because life is too precious to be treading water. There's too much mind-blowing stuff to learn. And I can tell you that just me personally, I got a late start, but I've been learning Torah every day for how many years? Um, I've been learning Torah every day for 36 years. And I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm just getting started. So that should just be an example that if you feel as though you've hit a wall or you pretty much have figured it out, that you're, you're on a wrong path. <laughs> just to put it nicely. Okay, so let me just say one thing over from my father. My father was a psychologist. He practiced for, for 50 years. And he really loved people and... I'll tell, you, I'll tell you just a story just because it's popping into my head. I mean, there's so many, but this is the one that's coming to me right now. So at the very end of his life, and I'm talking about the last few days of his life, first of all, my father was an impeccable dresser. He wore silk bow ties and tweed jackets and really beautiful laundered shirts. And he was very, very, he looked like a professor, he was a professor, in fact, but he actually looked like a professor. <laughs> and he actually looked like someone who was on the board of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He really had an elegance to him, but an elegance that had sort of like an academic sort of flourish to it. He smoked a pipe. He really, he was, you know, he was that guy, <laughs> but very loving very empathetic, very compassionate. And he loved art. He traveled all over the world and went to museums all over the world. I once heard this phrase, culture vulture, which I always liked. He, was, he and my mom were both culture vultures. I mean, and my dad could just stand in front of a painting that he liked and just get lost in that. And classical music, we always had classical music on in the, in the apartment because of him. So that, there was just this, this, this richness and this appreciation for, 
for beauty that he had. And anyway, toward the end of his life, and I'm really talking about the last few days of his life right now, he got dressed like in, in, as he would dress every day, even though he was extremely weak at this point. And by the way, he lost a, a leg below the knee to cancer. And so he had, uh, but that didn't stop him from traveling around the world. And I remember when he got diagnosed with having cancer, he said to me, it's going to be an adventure. That's the word that he used, which is amazing to me. And anyway, I was sitting with him in the apartment he was staying at out here in L.A. He lived in New York on the Upper West Side, but toward the very, very end of his life, he had an apartment here in, in Los Angeles. And so I was sitting with him in the little living room area of his place, and he was on the phone. It was a patient who was talking to him, and my, the patient couldn't see him, and my father was very weak. I mean, he was hours away from leaving this world, really. And he was kind of slumped over in the chair with the phone to his ear, <clears throat> and... I was thinking, I was almost like a little bit angry as I was sitting next to him because I, I felt like, like the person who's talking to him has no idea, no concept of the condition that he's in. And, and then when my father finished listening, my father sat upright and he said, okay, they can't talk to you like this. This is, this is what you have to do. And just like like he was 100%. Like somehow he summoned this strength. And I'll always remember that, that, that contrast with his weakness to all of a sudden when he needed to do something and help another person, it was like, boom. He was right back to who he was. And... As I'm telling the story right now and as I'm thinking about it, it seems to me that that must be so much of his life force came from helping people. And I think that maybe I was able to kind of see that in a very dramatic way at the very end of his life. My father, not the last days of his life, but, you know, toward the end of his life, when he was much stronger and more healthy, I remember sitting with him and he kind of just said out of the blue, he said, I'm not jealous of anyone. And I never heard anyone say that my whole life, before or since, that anyone would just announce that. He was living his life in a way that he was very happy with the life that he was living. And he didn't envy anyone else. Because he understood that the focus isn't about other people. Like I like to say, there is a competition going on. If you feel like you're in competition, you're not wrong. There is a competition going on. But it's between you and yourself. It's between you and your own potential. And the problem is, is that a lot of people misdirect that and they sense this competition, 
and they look at what other people have and what they don't have, or they expect things from other people, but you know what? If you are expecting something, expect it from yourself. Want more from yourself. Do more yourself. Because the reality is, is that every single person may as well be a separate galaxy. I mean, really what another person has, has absolutely nothing to do with you. Whatever they have, they need in order to accomplish what they have to accomplish in terms of their soul fixing in this world. It literally has nothing to do with you, and it certainly is not coming out of your pocket. Like when you hear about another person's success, like, like a lot of people think like their heart sinks a little bit. Like, I just gave that guy $50 million? No, listen carefully. Microsoft gave that guy $50 million. And who gave it to Microsoft? Hashem. In order to give to this person. Did you hear your name mentioned in that chain? No, that's because it has nothing to do with you. So, you know, as they say, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Because all those other things are just like distractions. They're total distractions just designed to mess you up and to allow you to do less. Now, just to be fair, we do have a concept called kina sofri. Kina sofri means jealousy among sages, right? That it's okay for wise people to be jealous of one another because the rabbis teach that it increases wisdom. Because if I say, wow, that person knows Shas, he went through the whole Talmud. I want to go through the whole Talmud. So now it's going to motivate me to do more. So that type of jealousy is considered appropriate, not because you're giving that other person a bad eye, a bad eye, chas God forbid, but because it's motivating you to do more and accomplish more. So, so, so jealousy among sages is okay, but, but you have to be a sage to be eligible to that level of jealousy. Do you understand? In other words, that type of jealousy is a reflection that you have lifted up yourself and refined yourself to a higher place. Then, then you'll be properly motivated. Otherwise, you'll just be pulled down. So I want to bring up this concept of jealousy as a transition to discuss Korach. Because Korach is a really fascinating, 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 totally complicated figure. He really wanted to be holy. He really wanted holiness. But because he had some unresolved things within himself, he got tripped up over those mitos within himself which hadn't been fully clarified. And so it turns into a bit of a disaster story. And he turns into, at least on the face of things, a bit of a villain, even though he really wanted something very holy. 
Now, it seems like, on the one hand, he got really wrapped up in this idea of covet, of honor, of running after honor. Because, at least on the most superficial level, he wanted to be the Kohen Gadol, the high priest of Israel, which was a job that Aaron had chosen by God. God gave Aaron that assignment. That was Aaron's job. That wasn't Korach's job. By the way, Korach was maybe the richest person in all of Israel. A really important thing to know. Not only that, but he was super wise. So seemingly he had everything. Not only that, but he actually had a position of great honor, which was he was one of the people carrying the Aaron Kodesh. Remember, the, the tabernacle in the desert, the Mishkan, was something that as we traveled in the desert would be broken down when we had to travel to a new place and then rebuilt, which means that the job of transferring certain elements of the Mishkan fell to certain families. And to be the one carrying the Ark of the Covenant with the luchos, the, the tablets from Mount Sinai in it. I mean, this was the job. That was the job. And Korach was one of those people who was transferring the Aaron Kodesh, the Ark of the Covenant. So you would think, okay, well, you know, he's got a lot of covet. He's got a lot of honor. He's got a lot of money, maybe the most money. He's really super wise. See, but... This is the problem with honor. If you're into honor, you can never have enough honor. There is no ceiling to honor. You know, I'll tell you something that I observed one time. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. But sometimes people extend their hand to greet you. But at least in my heart, I feel sometimes when they extend their hand, it's not to shake your hand, it's to give you the opportunity to shake their hand. <laughs> Honor is a really twisted, really semi-poisonous kind of thing. Think about Haman, Yemach Haman had a giant family. He had like a lot of sons. He was so rich, he was able to pay Akashveros, like he was buying like Cheetos in a grocery store, the right to eliminate the entire Jewish people. And Akashveros didn't want to be embarrassed. He's the king, right? Like, you're giving me money, I'm the king. So Akashveros says, no, I don't need the money, I don't need the money. But a gi giant sums of money, like ridiculous sums of money, Haman had. He's number two to the, to the king, who was the king of the known world at that point, 127 provinces. Not only that, but the king gave him his ring to make decrees that couldn't be broken. So essentially, he was the king. And what was the problem? There was one person, one Jew who wouldn't bow down to him. And he said, if he won't bow down to me, what good is everything that I have? Can you imagine how poisonous honor is? 
There is no ceiling to honor. Why did it take you so long to come up to me to say hello? <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, did I have to come up to you to say hello anyway? It just took you so long. When you saw me, you, you didn't really seem to have much of a smile on your face, did you? I came up to you and I said hello. I know, but you could have had a nice smile. It's endless. It's endless. It's endless. It was my birthday. It was so nice that you wished me a happy birthday at 3 p.m. What were you doing up until 3 p.m.? Right? So, so the sages teach that if you're into COVID, good luck. Good luck. So on the one hand, he wants to be the Kohen Gadol because he doesn't have enough honor. Now I saw in the name of the Tsar something amazing, which is that there was going to be a position that was going to be created called Levi Gadol. Like you have Kohen Gadol, there was going to be a Levi Gadol and it was going to be Karach who was going to get this position. But because he messed everything up and made such a division in the Jewish people. So, so not only did he not get that position, but that position was never assigned to anyone. So that honor, that extra honor, that unique honor actually was coming his way. But he was trying to take it instead of receive it. Honor has to be received, and it has to be received directly from God. When God chooses to send it to a person, if he chooses to send it to a person, if honor is taken, it's not the same thing. I'll give you a small example, but maybe you can relate to this. Let's say you cook a meal, right? And you know something? Like, and I'm saying this especially to the men out there, since a lot of times the women do the cooking, so men should be more sensitive to this, which is, do you know what goes into cooking a meal? You have to shop, you have to leave the house, you have to drive to the grocery store, you have to walk all around the grocery store, you have to get all of the ingredients, you have to drive them back, you have to prep them, you have to chop them. You know how long that takes alone? And then you didn't even turn on the oven or the pilot light on the stove yet. Then you've got to watch over it, then you've got to taste it, then you've got to find an interesting recipe, then you've got to serve it, then you've got to find other things that go with it. You, you think it just appears out of nowhere? Now imagine you are the cook, and you've put in all of that effort, and of course you want the other person to like it, right? But I know if it's me, there's all the difference in the world between me saying, do you like it? And the other person volunteering, oh, this is so good. <laughs> and that's the difference between taking honor and receiving honor, right? If you have to ask, it's already on the level of taking. And there's already something a little bit lacking in terms of how you feel. Like you get that reassurance, but it's not the same if they say, you know, you get dressed for a party. Oh, you look great. As opposed to how do I look? <laughs>
Just something else. By the way, this is for men. This was told to me by a woman. All men should know this for your life, dating, marriage life, which is there's two times that you have to tell a woman that she looks great. One, when she's leaving the house for an event, and two, when she's about to enter the event. Okay, that's the two times I was told when a woman really needs to be reassured. When she's leaving the house, because now it's too late to change anything, she has to be told then, and before she enters, no, be confident, you look great. Okay? So, if you want to be a proper partner, remember that. And remember to not wait to be asked if you see that someone put effort into anything, not just a meal, not just an outfit, anything, to volunteer it so that you don't have to be asked first. That's just menschlichkeit. Not everyone gets to write their own tombstone, but my dad wrote his, and he said that he wants it to say one thing. He wants it to say, a mensch. And it does. It says, a mensch. Right? For those of you who don't know, a mensch is... Really, it means a human being. It means, I guess, technically a man, but what it means is the biggest fulfillment of of decency, of decency. And my father and my mother both would say to me growing up all the time, you have to be a mensch. You have to be a mensch. Meaning you have to do the right thing. You have to do the right thing. And I remember one time I met someone very fancy and I was sharing with them all the fancy things about this person. And they looked at me and they said, is he a mensch? You know, like... Yeah, we get that he's this, that, and the other thing, but what about a mensch? Because if he's not a mensch, then what difference does all those other things make? So in Korach's defense, I saw from Rabbi Moshe Wolfson Shlita that the Navi Yecheskel, the prophet Ezekiel, says that in the end of days, the Levium are going to get a promotion and they're going to become the Kahanim. And what Karach wanted to do was he wanted to reverse things. He wanted to speed up the redemption of the world. And so the fact that he was a Levi and that he wanted to be a Kohen, that that was an aspect of a playing out of the redemption of the world. And that that was one of his high kavanas. Because again, you're seeing two sides of Korach and one of the sides was a legitimate Shiachtich-oriented tzaddik who was trying to bring the redemption, the Geula. But again, it got tripped up with some of the aspects of covet and honor along the way. And you also have this idea of taking as opposed to receiving. You know, any time like we demand the gu'ula, which I guess on some level we have to do to speed it up. But these things are very, very nuanced, right? Like in Chabad, it's we want Mashiach now, we don't want to wait. So there's an aspect to that which is very, very good. But certain points in history, there have been certain figures who have tried to 
institute the geula, and it's like a little bit like flying into the sun. Like they get burnt up when they do it. There's an amazing story, and I haven't got all the details down, so this is a little bit rough, but I, I just want to give you another more contemporary example. A very famous event in Hasidic history by the Chos of Lublin on a Simchas Torah, where he was surrounded with some of the other most famous of all the Hasidic Rebbe's, but I don't want to get the names wrong, so I'm not mentioning it right now but names that are household names, came together and they went to the second floor of this building and they did something to try to bring the Geula and they found the Chosa, like, I don't know how far a distance through the window. Something happened and they said that he, he landed hard on his legs Something like, and I'm making up this number, but it was a distance, something like a hundred yards from the building, something like that, and fell hard and like really never quite fully recovered, you know, the injury that he suffered. What were they doing? I have no idea. I have no idea. But it seems that they were trying to unleash something very, very powerful in terms of bringing the redemption. And it's like one of these like great historic mysteries. But something went down. So, clearly something went down. So again, this idea of receiving. And, and, and yet we have to, at the same time, show God that we want it though. But there's this fine line there. So one of my favorite stories is at 771 Shabbos, when the Rebbe was alive, everyone was singing, we want Mashiach now, we don't want to wait. And someone came up to the Rebbe and said, Rebbe, it's Shabbos. You know, it says very clearly in the Gomorrah that, that Mashiach is not coming on Shabbos. This is a known thing. So the Rebbe said back to him, let Mashiach come. And when he comes, he can explain to us how he came on Shabbos. <laughs> Which is, like, such a fantastic answer. Like, that's, yes, yes, that is the right answer. That's absolutely the right answer. It's like you see by, I believe it's also Yechesko, by the dry bones, if I'm not mistaken. Hashem says to Yechesko, he shows him the dry bones, and he says, what do you see? Now, if God asks you an open-ended question, like, what do you see? Be afraid to answer that question. <laughs> right? So Yechaskel says, you know God. <laughs> and guess what? That was the right answer. <laughs> so, you know, I'll tell you something. And for me, it's not shtick. It can turn into shtick, but it's, it's not shtick. I heard a story about the, the, from the Baal Shem Tov that he sent a certain someone, I don't remember the name, you can look it up, it's a very famous story. And he, he sent him to Israel and, and he told him, be very, very careful with, with everyone who you talk to. And 
at a certain point, uh, the, the man encountered someone, I, somehow I believe it was on the way back from the Kotel, but I'm not positive about that detail. And the man was asking him, oh, you know, who are you? Remember, this is in the 1700s, so I think the foot traffic to Israel wasn't as much as today, certainly. So the guy is asking him, who are you? And he says, you know, I'm from Russia, I guess. Or... And he says, oh, how are things for the Jews in Russia? And he says, you know, Baruch Hashem, you know, it's good, everything like that. Anyway, he gets back, and the Baal Shem Tov is very upset with him. And he doesn't know why. And he says, do you, you know that person who who is inquiring about the welfare of the Jews? That was Eliyahu. And you said everything was great. So if everything is great, then, you know, what do we have to bring the redemption for? And the Baal Shem Tov was upset with him. And so when I say that that story made a big impression on me, you know, I'm not making a joke right now. But my wife will say to me, I'm, I'm going to the supermarket. Do you want anything? And I say, Mashiach. Because if she says to me, do you want anything? And I say, no. How am I any different from the person in that story? So it's gotten to the point where sometimes my wife will say to me, I'm going to the supermarket. Do you want anything besides Mashiach? <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> that's how often this has happened over the years. But, but like I'm saying, like you can turn that into shtick or that can be real. If someone asks you, do you want anything? You know, that, that's a meaningful question. So what do you do when, when, when honor comes your way, right? So there's something that I kind of came to me at one point, so I'm, I'm suggesting this as something that, that I've done, and I, I think it's a, a beautiful thing, and it's helpful for my process anyway, and you know, there's a, a certain line and it says, Ha-Keter. Keter means crown. The crown and the covet, meaning honor, glory, belong to God. Right? So if, if it comes your way, if honor comes your way, well, it belongs to God, doesn't it? So you imagine it's coming to you and then you just reroute it back to God because it's his. You just, you know, you send it to the right address. <laughs> right? You ever get a letter that's addressed to a different thing? You just return it back to where it belongs. And that way you're not sullied by it and you're not corrupted by it because covered honor corrupts because it's a little like crack. <laughs> not that I know anything about crack, but... I know this much, if you have a little crack, you want more crack. <laughs> That's all you need to know about crack, not to do any crack.
until you've gone through all of your money and your family's money and anyone who else will give you money. And then you die. That's how, that, that's how the crack story goes. Right? So, you know, COVID, it's like, it tastes not good. It tastes delicious. Delicious. Right? So, best not to taste it. I remember as a kid, I grew up in the 70s in New York, and I, I remember hearing, you know, as part of a drug educational thing, that, because I think this is true of crack too, that if, if a person takes heroin once, they can become addicted after one time. And it's sort of like, I remember thinking when I heard that, I am never going near heroin. <laughs> like, why would I... Why would I want to become addicted to something? You know, this whole world is filled with things that are begging you to be addicted to. And it's like, just, like, walk a straight path. Don't fall into these pitholes. You know, one of the, a beautiful prayer is like, please God, I don't want to stray to the left and I don't want to stray to the right. Right? Because, you know, the world is filled with these. You know, Rebbe Nachman gives another bit of imagery. He says, the world is a very narrow bridge. The important thing is not to be afraid. And I was thinking about that one time. Because when you think of one of those narrow rope bridges between two chasms in a movie, how long does it take you to get from one side to the other side? In one of those things that you're imagining in your mind. Well... You think, well, it's kind of rickety. They're always like very precarious and, okay, I'm going to walk very slowly, try to keep my balance, try to hold on. If I give myself a lot of time, whatever bridge I'm imagining in my mind, 40 minutes, maybe, maybe take 40 minutes to get across, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. Okay. What does Rebbe Nachman say? The whole world is a very narrow bridge. You know what that means? You know how long it takes to get across that narrow bridge? 70 years? <laughs> 80 years? 90 years? That's your life. That's our life in this world. And then he says, the important thing is not to be afraid. Right? Very precarious. Very precarious. So, I want to go deeper. I want to tell you what the, what the Ishvitzer Rebbe, and I believe it's the Beis Yaakov, I believe it's the second Ishvitzer Rebbe, says about circles and squares and about the whole journey we're on in this world. Okay? So, so he quotes the Talmud Yerushalmi, Amazing, amazing teaching. It's one of the best teachings I've come across maybe in my whole life. The Talmud says that during the days of creation, God only made circles. He didn't make squares. Man came and made squares. But God only made circles. So what does that mean? What does that mean? 
So what is the nature of a circle? A circle has, imagine the point inside of a circle. As you go around the circumference of a circle, as you travel around the circle, whatever point you are in the circle, it's equidistant to the center of the circle. It could be on the left side of the circle, it's equidistant to the middle. It could be on the top of the circle, equidistant to the middle. Wherever you are on the circle, what that means is, in your travels through life, if things are going great, you're, you're like flying, God is right there. Let's say things are going, God forbid, horribly. God is right there. Wherever you are during the travels of your life, God is equidistant away. He's right there all of the time, all of the time. So then what does this mean? Man comes and makes squares. What does that mean? So a square is different from a circle because you have the corner of a square. And the distance from the corner of a square to the middle of the square, as opposed to the middle of one of the lines of the square to the center of the square, is different. From the corner, it's longer. Now listen to this. Man comes and makes squares. Man makes corners which are longer from the distance, which means man in his imagination and in his delusion imagines that he's farther away from God than he actually is. Man imagines a distance that simply isn't there. So remember, Korach gets involved in this whole idea of tzitzis. And that's why, says the Ishbitzer, we put tzitzis on the corner of our four-cornered garments. Because when we get to the corner, meaning when we get to that place where we imagine that we're farther away from God than we actually are, it's at that moment that we need the reminder that God is right there. That's why tzitzis go on corners. Isn't that amazing? That's one of the most heavenly teachings you're ever going to encounter, in my opinion. It's incredible. Now, based on that, I want to I build on that Torah. Okay? But this is me talking right now. So, this whole world is a journey. Your life is a journey. You know, I, I like to liken, liken every single person to an Ikea box. Right? When you go to Ikea, like, you get this long box that's like shockingly thin, right? And there's a couch inside that box. Or there's a whole bookcase inside that box. So you are an Ikea box. You get born with these pieces and it's sort of like, put yourself together. That's your life in this world. Now go and put yourself together. And that assembling process can take, can slash should take a lifetime. Right? 
Now, hopefully, you're going to get the major piece of furniture down sooner rather than later. However, everyone has more or less the same experience where you finish building the couch and you've got lots of screws left over. <laughs> you got all these things left over. But when God gives you your IKEA box, which is you, there are no extra parts. <laughs> if you've got a little bag of extra screws left over, that means there's still work to do. And if you say, well, I don't know where these things go, so mazel tov, figure out where they go. <laughs> what am I missing? What am I not doing yet? What should I be doing that I don't even have the awareness that I should be doing if I can't figure out where these parts go? So all of life is this building process. All of history is this building process. And perhaps the major message that I've tried to get out in my lifetime is the answer to this question that absolutely everybody has, which is, if there's a God, why is the world so messed up? And the answer is, because the world isn't finished yet. That's the answer. There's actually an answer to that question. The world isn't finished yet. Now you see that, remember the Zohar says that the Torah is a blueprint of creation. That God looked into the Torah and he made the world. So when you hit the first word or the first letter of the Torah, you're literally entering into the blueprint of reality. So those, the Zohar says that the first word of the Torah contains the entire Torah. And the first letter of the, of the first word of the Torah contains also everything. The first word is contained in the first letter. So let's look at the letter Bays, and you're going to see how it talks about this journey. It's also going to talk about squares, the way we just discussed them, how man creates illusion. It's going to talk about this whole Ikea thing. We're going to see it's, it's all going to come into the very first letter of the Torah, all of these teachings that we've been discussing. So first of all, let's just see the fact that the world is, in, is that we're all on a journey together and that it's not finished yet in the first word of the Torah. Breshis means beginnings. Beginnings implies middle and end. You don't talk about a beginning unless you're talking about a middle and an end. So the very first word of the Torah is telling us we are on a journey. Okay. You see, the, what's the problem? What, what, why are we so mad at Esav, Yaakov's brother? Why are we so mad at him? Judaism is like really mad at Esav. Okay, besides the fact that he tried to kill Yaakov, besides that fact, on a more sort of like existential level, why are we so mad at Esav? Because Esav comes from the word asui, which means made. Made means finished. He's born with the concept that he's done. That he already did his work, that whatever he needs to accomplish, it's already been done. 
This is the complete opposite of Torah and Judaism. The idea that we're not done till our last breath in this world. So Breshis tells us that we're on a journey. Now let me tell you something interesting. The letter Bez, the first letter of the Torah, is the number two. And that two stands for a lot of things. It stands for heaven and earth, good and evil, the Yetzirah and the Yetzir Tov. It stands for male and female. It stands for the hidden and the revealed. It stands for our two eyes. It stands for the inside and the outside. It stands for a lot of things. It also stands for free choice. That's maybe the deepest thing, because what is free choice? I can do this, or I can do that. That's also the number two. The whole world is predicated on free choice, right? Because we use our free choice to bring about the completion of the world. But now I'll tell you one more that we'll focus on right now. Bayes, the number two, also stands for the written law and the oral law. Torah Shebek Tzav and Torah Shabal Peh. And they're both contained within the first letter of the written Torah. Because remember, when Moshe got the Torah from God at Mount Sinai, God was telling him, write down this letter, write down this letter, was dictating the Torah to him letter by letter. But God was also explaining to Moshe what these passages meant. That's where the oral law comes from. A lot of people think that the oral law is the Talmud, which is just a collection of teaching of the rabbis. They're wrong. It's also that, but that's not the essence of what the oral law is. The oral law is God's own explanation to Moshe of what these passages mean as God is giving Moshe the Torah. And he tells Moshe, don't write this down, but this is what it means. And Moshe then passes on God's own explanation of the psukim, of the verses of the Torah, to the kihila, to Klau Yisrael, who then pass it down, who then pass it down. Eventually it gets written down because they were afraid it's going to get forgotten with all the persecution. And then the rabbis then start adding stories and explanations. And that's why it's got a contemporary feel, the Talmud, contemporary as of 2,000 years ago but contemporary vis-a-vis Mount Sinai, right? So they're just elucidating the teachings as they're handed down, and they're getting extra garments on them, but the core of the oral Torah is coming from God to Moshe Mount Sinai. So that's why the letter Bez of Breshit is also the number two, which is the oral and the written law since they came down at the same time. Okay. Now, we're going to go deeper. So, I'm going to get more visual too. So, you're going to have to picture what I'm telling you. The first letter of the written law is the letter Bayes. The last word of the oral law is Shalom, which means peace, coming from the word Shleimut, which means completion. Right? Because you feel that peace when you're complete. Or when you're complete, you feel at peace. 
So it's a very appropriate that the Torah ends with the word shalom, the oral law. But the very last letter of the word shalom is the final mem. Now the final mem is like a box closed on four sides. All right, now let's go back to the first letter of the Torah. And what did I say to you? I said that the, the first word of the Torah, even the first letter of the Torah, as you're going to see right now, is telling us we're on a journey. All of life is a journey. Okay? Now, if you imagine the letter Bayes, it's a three-sided box, but it's one side is open. Isn't it interesting that this three-sided box ends, the Torah ends with the final mem, which closes the final side of the box? Because a final mem is a four-sided box. The first letter is a three-sided box. Do you see how that, that base gets completed at the end? That that last line gets filled in of the letter Bays. So what I'm trying to tell you here is if you go, wait a second, wait, the letter Bays is a three-sided box. Why are you telling me it's a four-sided box? It's a three-sided box. Don't get confused. Here's the point. Even the first letter of the Torah, the letter Bays, is on a journey. The letter Bays is on a journey toward completion to have that final closure built into it and revealed. That's the last line. And when you fill in that last line, you get the last letter of the Torah. The Torah, Shabbat Peh. Shalom, the final letter, Mem. So now, let's take the first letter of the Torah and the last letter of the Torah. And we see it's a Bez and a final Mem. Now, you want to hear something fascinating? That adds up to the number 42. When we journeyed in the desert from Egypt to Israel, there were 42 stops. And that journey from Egypt to Israel was a microcosm of all of history. And the Baal Shem Tov says, all of us have 42 stops in our own life. Isn't it amazing that the Torah itself has this 42 stops. From the first letter, the letter Bez of Breshis to the letter Mem of Shalom, that there are also 42 stops in the Torah. Isn't that amazing? Now I want to tell you something that Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver said. Now he had the Kabbalistic Mesor from the Vilna Goanis about two generations after the Vilna Gon, one of the deepest greatest Kabbalists. So famously, the Ramban says that the Torah is black fire on white fire. So what does that mean? Black fire on white fire. So remember, the Torah, imagine a Torah scroll. The Torah is the blueprint of creation. So the letters that you can see on the Torah scroll, the, that's the black fire. Those are the aspects of the world that you can see with your eyes, like a chair or your arm or another person or the sky. That's all black fire. The things you can see with your eyes. What about the white fire? That's the parchment 
that the Torah is written on. It's not just parchment. That's white fire. That stands for all of the spiritual realms that exist, that are there, that you can't see with your eyes. Okay? So now let's look at the letter Bays again. The letter Bays is also just the very first letter, because what did I tell you? Not only is the whole Torah contained in the first word, but the first word is contained in the first letter of the Torah. That means that that Bays is traveling to become that final Mem. <laughs> that first letter contains the entirety of the Torah. That three-sided box is going to become that four-sided box because all of reality is contained within that first letter. It's just that that last line, turning it from a base to a final mem, is still on the level of white fire, and it hasn't become black fire. The end, the end of days have not been revealed yet. So they're not on the level of black fire yet. So Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver explains the following. Do you know what that last line stands for? That last black line, which the letter Bez is missing to become complete? Or let me rephrase it this way. What has not been revealed in this world, that's Blackfire, that still needs to be revealed? And you're ready for the answer? The reward for the righteous. Because that's everybody's question. If there's a God, why is the world so messed up? And what did I tell you? Because it's not finished yet. But what are people really asking when they say, why is the world so messed up? Why are there righteous people who are suffering? Why hasn't the reward for the righteous been revealed? Wait, wait, wait. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Just wait. Remember Karach. Karach was going to have a position that no one ever had before. The Levi Gadol. He didn't wait. Remember the classic story, Rebbe Nachman. There's two beggars. One's Jewish, one's not Jewish. And the Jewish one turns to the non-Jewish one and says, tonight... You're in luck. Tonight is Pesach. You're going to get such a meal tonight, like a feast. I'll take you to shul tonight. No one will be left behind. Everyone is going to be taken to a place. You're going to have such a meal tonight. So the next day, the Jew sees the non-Jew. He says, did I tell you? And the non-Jew says back to him, I don't know what you're talking about. I showed up at this place. They're talking and they're talking and they're talking. No one's eating. And then finally, they give you a little sprig of parsley. Who are these crazy people? And then they're talking and they're talking and they're talking. And then they give you this bitter maror, this horseradish. I, I stood up and I said to them, you're all crazy. And I left the, the place. And the other one says back to him, I, if only you waited a little bit longer. So now, I told you, the whole world is the journey from the letter Bays to the final Mem, the first letter to the last letter, but you see it within the first letter itself. 
on the level of black fire and white fire, that first letter Bays evolving into the letter Mem with the revelation of the reward for the righteous. And so now I want to add some more things. The last word, the last letter, the last word is Shalom. The last letter is the final Mem. So based on that Ishbitzer Torah that I was telling you before, what did I tell you, tell you? That a circle, every part in the circle is equidistant to the center. Right? Which means whether you're flying high or you're so low, as my, as my dad, Oliver Shalom, would say, like, that guy can't even get arrested. Right? You know you're in bad shape if you can't even get arrested. Right? Wherever you are, God is right there. You're equidistant from God, no matter where you are in life. But man makes corners. Man creates the illusion that he's further away from God than he actually is. So I want to say that the completion of the Torah is the final mem, which is a square, which is that our conscious is going to evolve over history and we're going to realize even in those moments where we thought we were far away from God, we never were. Even during the worst suffering and the worst tragedies of Jewish history, we're going to come to realize that God was always there and he was always holding us up and there was a purpose and a meaning for absolutely everything that we went through. And as one of the Rebbe's say by Nachumu, Nachumu, the first Nachumu is, you know, I know it was hard, but it was for your own good. That's the first consolation. So then what's the second Nachumu? God says, but still, I'm sorry you had to go through it. That's the second Nachum. And now, just to end with this final teaching, I woke up on Shabbos morning with this teaching in my head. I don't know where it came from, but there it was. It's on the word Shalom. That's the last word that we've been discussing. But now, with this, with this preparation, you'll understand this teaching. What does Shalom mean? What does peace mean? What does completion mean? The word shalom. You can break it into two parts. Shalom, mem. To him, there is completion. The final mem. Shalom means to him, right? For him. Completion. And who's him? That's God. That's also you. Right? Because everything merges into one. We realize that we're just another aspect in a revealed level in God's great infinity. So this is important because this is the culmination of what I'm saying. The end of the whole journey is a square. Now we said, we talked about squares in a negative way at the beginning. We said, hey, wait a second. Squares aren't so great because squares suggest this illusion that you're further away than you actually are. God makes circles. Man makes squares. Okay. A lot of people think that the Garden of Eden was a cosmic spa and we blew it. Right? Why did we have to eat from the tree of knowledge? Like everything was so good. But you know something? Before we ate from the tree of knowledge, God gave us a command, 
to work and guard the garden, which means before we ate from the tree of knowledge, this world was a work session because we had the mitzvah to work and guard the garden before we ate from the tree of knowledge. In other words, working for a living isn't only a punishment that man has to work by the sweat of his brow, right? And that the land is cursed and all these things that come down after we eat from the tree of knowledge. It was a work session beforehand. So people have a very weird idea about what the Garden of Eden was. We were doing something there. We were finishing creation. And as I always quote Reb Shlomo, because this is one of the most amazing, beautiful things I ever heard in my life. If the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? The very fact that the snake was there is evidence that it wasn't complete. Now, let me tell you why I'm bringing this up right now. I'm not changing the subject. If you think that the Garden of Eden was absolutely complete, then all of history is just getting out of the red. Right? All we're trying to do in terms of all these thousands of years is just get back to zero. What sense does that make? What sense does that make? That all of this is like, like you go into a, a, a restaurant and you forget your wallet and you spend the next several weeks washing dishes? Is that what God created the world for? For billions of people to wash dishes for thousands of years because Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge? Does that make any sense whatsoever? So in other words, the end has to be greater than the beginning. It has to be. It has to be. We have to be evolving something. We have to be making progress. We have to be adding something. Well, if you say very simply, the world was not complete in the beginning, and now we're bringing it to completion, well, that's quite a contribution. Now, how do we see that in terms of the last letter being a square? Because what we come to realize, which we didn't know in the beginning, in the beginning we thought a square was creating this extra distance and that we could move away from God, that there could be a place where God isn't. That's how Reb Tzadok HaKoyin says what the snake did to us. The snake convinced us that there was such a thing as a place where God isn't. That would be the corner of the square. At the end of the whole process, we realize God is even in the corner of the square. That God fills absolutely everything. And even in those moments we thought that he wasn't there, he was 100% there. Our consciousness evolves so that really a square becomes like a circle. And that's the evolution. And that's the happy ending that the square at the beginning, when it was a negative, now becomes a positive at the end. Through our expansiveness in terms of our understanding. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.